I'm Alex Marlowe, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News, and on today's show we begin with a recap of what was a pretty busy election night. I give my take on whether or not the red wave is coming after all. Paul Pelosi pled guilty to a DUI and got a light sentence. Shocking, I know. And we have a woke update for you with some actual good news for once. I break down a stunningly incoherent clip of John Fetterman of Pennsylvania, and then I roast the media for more innuendo around the FBI Mar-a-Lago raid, plus much more in the opening monologue. Our guest today is Jennifer Ruth Green, who is running for Indiana's first district, the congressional seat there. She's a third-generation veteran. She would be the only black Republican woman in the Congress and could potentially turn a blue district just outside of Chicago red. Very exciting to meet her. Let's get into it. was election night, so we'll begin with some big results there. I'll go through some of what I think are the highlights, though, of course, typically on uh, these primaries, it's hard to get through all the interesting stories uh, at the top, so I always recommend as a companion to the show, if you listen live, if you listen on demand in the SXM app, if you listen on the podcast, uh, alwaysbrightbright.com supplements everything I'm saying always all the time always assume there is some supplemental information for you that is at Breitbart that you are uh, I encourage you to take a look at um, but I will say that maybe maybe the he- the, the headlines uh, of the top headlines uh, Mark Wayne Mullen winning in the Oklahoma GOP primary special election for US Senate uh, that's a really big one he's very Breitbart and he's been the show a number of times and I can't think of many times where I've disagreed with him, um, but that's to see this being vacated by retiring longtime Senator Jim Inhofe, um, who is sometimes quite wrong on stuff, but in general has been a pretty stalwart senator for a very long time, and he's moving on. And uh, Mullen is very much in, I think, the worldview of the this audience and the show and the viewpoint I come from. So I, I think it's very good, and hopefully he'll show some leadership. Um, when he gets in there, uh, there is a uh, there is were a lot of school board elections, particularly in the state of Florida, which saw a lot of left wing people crushed. And I think this is really cool. And it's something that I think is due to a lot of the sort of online activism that you see from people like Breitbart, people who have reported a lot on the wokeification of this country, critical race theory, the uh, gender transitioning stuff. And there are some states where there is a pretty big activist base. They seem to be getting more right of center. And places like Florida, for example, are, seem to be one of the hotbeds of it. And we, again, we've written up all the details for you at Breitbart News, but it seems like over and over again, leftist school board candidates were getting crushed, particularly in Florida. Now, I haven't looked at school board races in many other states, but I did know uh, we did catch there was a pattern of uh, left-wingers going down. We were tracking a bunch of races in Florida, and it seemed like a really big night for Republicans in that regard. Uh, here is one that had no a race and no Republican running in it, and I love the result. It is that Jerry Nadler has won defeating Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney. Uh, Nadler is 
um, a, one of the more entertaining Democrats, very far left, very strange to look at, not a bright guy, has been known to eat hot dogs straight out of the package in front of an open refrigerator. Yes, this is true. And by true, meaning I assume it's true. I don't know this for a fact, but I assume that when he wants to chow down for a little bite, get a little bite to eat, then he will go to his fridge. He'll open the fridge. He will take out a jar of mustard. He likes the classy stuff. So he uses the the glass jar, unscrew the cap, slide out one of the hot dogs from the package. Will not cook it, will not heat it up. He will just dunk it. Because remember, the hot dog is fully cooked, fully cooked when it arrives at the supermarket in the package. And he will take it out and he will swirl it around, do a little swirl, not just a wipe. He'll do a swirl inside the mustard, pop in his mouth, chew it right there. Because remember, there's no calories if it's in front of an open fridge. It's one of the rules. Of, it's hard science. If you sit down at the table and use a plate like a civilized human being, tons of calories for a hot dog. Well, not really. It's kind of a, it's a better deal than, than it looks. It's a few calories. But in front of an open fridge, it doesn't count. Nadler figured this out a long time ago. Um, and um, I, I, this is this this bit I do about Nadler is based off of a New York Times article from a long time ago stating his favorite snack is frankfurters. He also likes Fig Newtons. Uh, and I've read from this article and people cannot even believe it. The diet that Nadler had before he got his uh, gastric bypass, or whatever it's called, uh, uh, surgery that he had. Um, he was morbidly obese at a time. And he's clearly not someone who is a good representative of anything. He's not a good representative of New York City. He's not a good representative of the Democrat Party. He's not a good representative of this country. But I like clarity. And I, I don't really think it was an interesting race because Carolyn Maloney was also a powerful Democrat in the Congress. And they got, due to redistricting, they had to go up against one another. And Nadler prevailed, which I'm thrilled by because that is one of my favorite characters. And if you're going to get a Democrat you don't like in the Congress, I always want to have a, a character. I want someone who's more interesting for me to cover Breitbart. And so uh, thank you, New York, for giving us Nadler yet again. Uh, Matt Gates decisively fended off a primary opponent in his race, which is exciting. Um, Val Demings will be the Senate uh, candidate in Florida against Marco Rubio. That's not a surprise. And she's someone who was seen as a potential vice presidential pick. And um, they're already putting out push polls saying she's ahead against Marco Rubio in Florida. Again, she would be a very strong candidate in a year where you wouldn't expect to see somewhat of a red wave. And uh, considering that Florida seems to be going from purple state to red state pretty quickly. But that's definitely a race to watch and is shaping up to be one of the more compelling races because of the fact that she is a pretty strong uh, candidate. And I think she does. Uh, I have, I, I don't think that she's seen as a typical woke Democrat, which might cause some comfort for people who might have thought of themselves traditionally as Democrats and might be unhappy with some of the trends. Uh, the, she might have an edge over your standard Democrat candidate. So that will certainly be a race to watch. Though, of course, any Republican is, um, you know, going to be, especially an incumbent, is going to be favored this time around. But she's a pretty strong candidate and will perhaps have a high profile in the Senate should she win. And so that's one I know the Democrats have their eye on in a big way. 
Uh, Anna Paulina Luna won a Florida GOP primary. She's been on the show, I think, once. Um, she uh, beat Kevin Hazlett in Florida's primary. Uh, she's definitely someone who has a lot of uh, charisma and has a great backstory. Uh, young, very good looking, and I think she's a veteran as well. Uh, I think she does a lot of gun stuff online, which is very appealing to younger people. So uh, certainly a lot of high hopes for her. Yeah, she's a veteran, and uh, I was correct on that. And that's a, a, another good one that I think she's gonna have a lot of MAGA supporters there and uh, other supporters as well. So that's, that'll be an exciting race out in Florida. Um, Charlie Crist will be the gubernatorial uh, nominee and he'll go against Ron DeSantis and he will lose by a very wide margin in November, which is fun and fun guy to beat up. Um, one that I think a lot of people in Breitbart Nation were a little surprised by, uh, Corey Mills, who was backed by the establishment, uh, beat uh, Sabatini out in Florida, Anthony Sabatini, who is was a fan favorite among the Breitbart audience in a lot of ways, very online friendly, very MAGA, very uh, kind of rambunctious, shall we say, online. And uh, Mills won the... Uh, the Mills won a pretty tight race there, single-digit margin. Uh, that uh, when we posted on it, it hadn't fully been counted out, but uh, they'd projected he was going to win. And he's an establishment guy, and that's uh, that, that, that's a bit of a loss. I still hope he wins because I don't like when Democrats win. But uh, it is that one was a bit of a disappointment, I think, for a lot of people in Breitbart Nation. Um, let's see. Here's one that was not positive for a conservative. The Democrat Pat Ryan defeated conservative Mark. Molinaro in New York's 19th special election. This is one that was seen by some online prognosticators, many of whom I don't trust. But if you were reading online, a lot of the people who follow trends, that they were looking at this race as sort of a, a red wave bellwether. Um, this was going to be a tight race, and it was one that the National Republican Congressional Committee had privately thought they were probably going to lose, at least according to my sources. But it is one where if uh, Molinaro, who's a conservative candidate, uh, won this one, they thought that perhaps this would really indicate that it could be a huge blowout in November. And recall that the latest polling suggests that the, the, the red wave is not necessarily happening. The red wave is sort of overblown at this point, starting with the fact that the um, Senate map is so favorable to Democrats. There is so many close races uh, that are sort of unique with unique candidates, candidates that can't neatly be packaged into a, your standard left-right box or conservative, liberal or MAGA, non-MAGA. It, it, there, there's a bunch of unique races and there's a lot of seats where the Democrat is heavily favored due to voter registration gaps. Uh, or there are a Republican incumbents. So a Republican win does not mean a pickup. The Republican win means they've merely defended a seat. So the Senate is going to be a tough slog for Republicans anyway. And so these little bellwethers in the House uh, send a signal. And this one was one where the Democrat nearly won, um, and which was, again, to be expected. But if we were really looking at a red wave, you might have seen a Republican victory in this race. So this is one that I know disappointed certain people and a lot of people who are tracking uh, races online there were a lot of districts and again we've seen we've been redistricted since the last election but there were a number of uh, of key races in areas where you might suggest 
Um, they, they, let's put it this way. There are places where Democrats have gained ground since 2022. Uh, we were tracking the Minnesota 1st District, uh, Nebraska 1st District, New York 19th District, as I just mentioned, New York 23 District. Uh, pretty substantial moves from the uh, to the Democrat side in terms of voter, uh, in, in terms of vote from 2020. Again, things have been redistricted, and that's always a factor in these things, and I, I don't purport to have that narrow of uh, that, that minute of a level of detail in some of these races and what could explain why that is. Uh, but we're seeing pretty big turnouts for Democrats in certain places relative to what you might expect. So uh, those are kind of the key things that caught my eye uh, from the election yesterday. If you have any thoughts. Oh, uh, the Alan Grayson is not going to return to Congress, which is very sad. He was a establishment Democrat, Maxwell Frost, who is a 25-year-old. Uh, he beat Alan Grayson, who was in the Congress. And Grayson was one of the most insane, yes, truly insane members of the Congress, who was in, I think, only for a couple of years. or And then did he get back in? I think he did get back in. Um, but he is... A, a a let me see i'm trying to figure out when he was in the congress but he was one of the most wild characters in the congress in the blast from the past um i think for a lot of you have been following politics for a while and one of the original sort of online manipulators that are very entertaining to follow even though not necessarily a good guy but he would definitely shake things up from time to time with with truly ridiculous statements and um trying to manipulate the media to get attention uh, for his stuff. And he would call lots of people racist all the time. And um, it is a, he was referred to as a loose cannon. Again, a shame if Democrats are going to win, I was kind of like when they're nuttier, like the nuttier Democrats, I think are, are more entertaining for me to watch. So um, I highly encourage you to go to Breitbart and read the old Alan Grayson stories of old. If you're not familiar with them, but uh, he will not be coming back, which is sad. Um, I think that's all from the election, but again, a lot more that uh, you will see at at Breitbart.com if you care to follow the uh, reporting we've done. All right, so the next thing up is today we're probably going to get another very minor move that the White House is going to make that will uh, infuriate people and also eat up another news cycle from the even worse stuff that's going on. They're planning to announce $10,000 of student loan cancellation, and they're going to extend their payment pause. Uh, this is going to get announced today, allegedly, and those who make less than $125,000 a year annually will have $10,000 in student loan forgiven. Uh, of course, the 120000 number is totally arbitrary. Uh, if you're making... 125,000 in New York, for example, let's say you make 126,000 and you have children, you're basically on subsistence living. It's a, it's in order to make ends meet, you're spending every penny of that without a doubt. Um, but if you are a hundred $125,000 and you're living in sort of rural America, then, and you don't have kids, then you're probably living a, a very nice life. Um, so again, pretty arbitrary and they're doing that in $10,000, very arbitrary and not all that much money relative to what a lot of uh, the debt people are carrying. So I'm wondering how this plays politically. And I definitely want your thoughts on it at 
patriot because I, it is a highly irritating move. It is as, uh, for example, um, I, I know that uh, I was talking to producer Zach, who said he feels like a sucker because he paid off all of his loans. Uh, I paid off all of my loans and I paid them all off, you know, when I was making less than that amount of money. So you do feel kind of stupid uh, when that's the case. And it is the $10,000 number is really a drop in the bucket for people who got private uh, school education. Um, as I've confided the audience on the show, I mean, Mrs. Dr. Marlowe uh, is riding a debt load that is uh, astronomically higher than that. It is we wouldn't even notice. Um, but again, we have not been paying our loans back because there's been payment pauses and we've been deferring them because uh, I know stuff, stuff like this is going to happen, which disincentivizes you to start uh, paying your loans down. It is every incentive there is, is to not pay them down. Um, because the rates on them are very low and the uh, government is always constantly talking about forgiving them. And we know Democrats really want to do it because what does loan forgiveness represent? First of all, it represents a a sort of a soft money contribution, a, a indirect contribution to the universities. This is what allows for them to charge $60,000 a year for a women and gender studies degree or a, a Native American dance degree. Uh, it's the, of course, these degrees aren't worth that. In the marketplace, there is a no market for them. They don't help you make a penny in the real world. Not a penny. In fact, you'll be, if you spend four years uh, getting a, 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 a gender queer dance degree, then which, you know, they have this type of stuff. You could just read Charlie Kirk's latest book. He goes through a lot of the absurd degrees they have. Then you're going to go into the marketplace four years behind someone who just, you know, went to community college and worked part time and started to move up the ladder in their uh, in, in their preferred field. You're actually behind. And then you're going to have a quarter million dollars in debt if you don't take anything out for cost of living. So and assuming you don't have a great job while you're uh, you know doing your full time dance degree. So uh, there's no logic to it. So, so so why would anyone get a degree like that? Well, because they got suckered into a system and a system that society encourages you to do that sort of stuff. Left-wing society, right-wing society, much less so at this point. Um, And I'll tell you that traditionally people had come come from the viewpoint, and I'm in this group, that the only reason to go to a traditional four-year college at this point is to get a STEM degree, science, technology, engineering, math. But there are some people like the Peter Thiels of the world who would say you don't even need to go to college for most of those fields. Now, if you're going to be a medical doctor like Mrs. Dr. Marlowe, then it's a good luck doing that without going to a traditional four-year school. Not going to happen. But that said, if you want to be an engineer, if you want to be someone who works online, you want to work in high tech, you might be better off not going to a a four-year degree anymore. I would have absolutely said if you were a, I think I looked at it when I was at UC Berkeley, which I graduated in 2008. Um, I think that at the time, computer science was the highest earning entry level jobs from my graduating class. So if you study computer science, again, it's Bay Area. So, of course, there's a lot of high tech jobs in proximity to that. But I think that was the highest entry level salary was was if you were a computer science major. But that said, I don't even think you need to do that anymore because there's so many online resources and kids start so early who are inclined to get into programming, stuff like that. Some of them are doing it, you know, when they're 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 preteens. They're already in, into coding and stuff. 
So the um, I've not gotten there yet with my kids or even, um, you know, nephews and nieces, stuff like that. Um, so I, I, I don't know for sure how this goes, but it seems like what people told me. So if that is the case, then it, it, there's increasingly no reason to go to these four-year schools. So the White House giving this loan forgiveness is just a de facto handout to these universities. So where do these professors donate their money? Where do the school administrators donate their money when they are allowed to continue to jack up the rates because they know they're getting subsidized by the federal government? Not to mention that there's so many federal loans that are given out at low rates. Uh, All of this translates to is more expensive, useless degrees. So that's what this is. And yet... Still, some people will applaud this. And why will they applaud it? They'll applaud it because it is a handout for people who might be inclined to vote for Democrats, especially ahead of a midterm. Uh, Republicans didn't do this for me. Look at me. I, the, I, I got a, a, my president gave me $10,000. That's how a lot of people look at this. And, you know, Trump made a similar move with his PPP stuff and his the, whatever those uh, business handouts were uh, during the pandemic. So, but this is vote buying and it's also uh, kicking money back to the university system, which is one of the biggest, most uh, hardcore voter bases for the Democrat party. But will this be seen as adequate? Will the AOCs of the world be happy about this? And I I just don't know. I don't know what the average debt burden is. But again, there are going to be a lot of people in Producer Zach's camp who was like, well, they're making me seem like a sucker because I did the right thing and paid down my loans. And then there's people in the Mrs. Dr. Marlowe camp, which is that we have so much, like, how would we even notice? I mean, the last $10,000 out of hundreds of thousands. Um, but let's see. Let's see. The system is so broken, but the thought that the the federal government just, you know, forgiving the loans, which just lets the universities off the hook is just absurd, beyond absurd. All right. So um, do we have my Fetterman clip? Because I want to play this. And this is just it's, it's disturbing again. So John Fetterman is increasingly becoming the most interesting Democrat running uh, in November. He's going up against Dr. Oz. Um, and he back out on the stump, giving another disturbing speech. He just came back from a stroke. Let's play it. I'm honored to be standing in the shadow of your amazing, your amazing building. Do you think of the 10 homes Dr. Oz have has a union hall across their home? If you say you think the word of steel worker, what words come to your mind if you say steel workers? Of all the words that bring to your mind when you hear the word steel workers, does the word crudite come to your mind? That's not a word that's going to come to my mind. Crudite is wrong with demanding for an easy, safe kind of their income. What? This is one simple and one simple truth. If you send me to Washington, D.C., and there's going to be choices in front of me as the next senator, and it's going to be, it's going to be what? Are you going to stand with the union way of life or are you going to stand with trying to destroy the union way of life? And there is near, there is no doubt in knowing I'm going to come down and stand with the union way of life. 
If I'm your next senator to Washington, D.C., guess what? You're still going to have a senator that's going to be living across the street from your steel plant. I'm going to be the kind of senator that's going to be living directly across the street with a union hall, 1219. Wow, it's a rambling, incoherent, almost impossible to follow. Uh, he got his main message out that he stands for the Union way of life. Congrats. Well done. Was he saying crudite? Like like, like the little vegetables like they serve to you sometimes if you're at a fancy hotel? I, I think that's what he was saying. It's a French appetizer consisting of sliced whole raw vegetables. Uh, it's a good move when you get the guacamole because when you get the guacamole, you, you're mostly there for the guacamole, but you you know you put down forty or fifty chips like every time. And I literally did this last night, just plowing down chips because I was in the mood for guacamole. Uh, but if you get the crudite, you get the like carrots and celery and stuff. You, you kind of save some calories. It's good. It, it's a good move. But why is he bringing this up? Is he mocking Doctor Oz like Doctor Oz, some sort of an elite? Which, of course, Dr. Oz is, which is, you know, a, a, a interesting casting that the Republicans picked him out um, of for to be the Pennsylvania senator, to be their nominee. Interesting, shall we say. But I will say John Fetterman has a degree from Harvard and lived off of his parents into his 40s. So him uh, acting like he's never been around a plate of crudite is, is, is a lie. And it's just a French, you're allowed to have French words. Like this thing is, it's sort of anti-elitism. I was told the right cares about that stuff. Like like the right is, is like we don't like that sort of thing. It, it, there's no reason why a blue collar person can't want to have some raw vegetables every once in a while. Seems like an odd point. I think that was his big point. I'm fascinated by it because it's hard to keep up with what he's saying. It's just raw veggies. Okay. So what? But I will tell you, he did put out a, I'm interested in, in a uh, post he put out in his Twitter. This is what he says. It says, uh, hold Washington accountable. And he tweeted something. He says, this is the plan. Make more SHIT in America. Cut taxes for working people. Ban Congress from trading stocks. Slash out-of-pocket health care costs and end immoral price gouging. That's a very populist message. And make more stuff in America, cutting taxes for the working class and banning Congress from trading stocks is something that is, I would think that'd be pretty much automatic in this audience. I mean, so he has five bullet points that he says is the plan and at least three of them, I think you guys would pretty much universally agree with. Uh, slashing out of pocket healthcare costs is sort of pie in the sky, um, I mean, you know, again, 75% of healthcare costs are paid by the government anyway at this point. So uh, it, it's, it's, it's really a matter of healthcare in this country is generally very good if you can get some good insurance. And if you can't get good insurance, you're generally going to get completely screwed. And it's kind of where, it, where we're at. And I thought Obama fixed that, or at least he tried to, maybe didn't fix it. And end immoral price gouging. Good luck with that. Also, it is kind of weird that we have decided certain industries price gouging is immoral and other industries it's fine. But I mean, for the most part, this is a pretty good populist message. But then he speaks and he's trying to do the fake populism stuff and he just comes off as incoherent. So uh, Sean Handy challenged him to a debate, which I thought was pretty amusing. I would love to see that. Uh, he will not take him up on it because he's not all there in the head anymore. He's just going to be a generic Democrat. So don't get fooled by the stuff. 
All right, um, 866-95-PATRIOT. A few other items I want to mention. I guess we're kind of in a woke update here. A man was arrested for allegedly spray-painting swastikas on an LGBT crosswalk. And this is one where a lot of people thought that this was, uh, this is in Georgia. It's going to be another one of those uh, white racists. It turned out to actually be a black male, a guy named Jonah Sampson, 30-year-old, is the top suspect. Had a five-hour standoff with a SWAT team. Um, but interesting. It's a, hey, look, we got this rash of Nazis in America. They also happen to be, I guess, uh, uh, occasionally black people. Paul Pelosi pled guilty to a DUI, Nancy Pelosi's husband. And he got no additional jail time. This was an interesting one to read because I think his blood alcohol level was 0.082. So barely over the legal limit, but he did crash into some people uh, and they were injured. So thus misdemeanor. He gets five days in jail and he had got credit for a couple days for good behavior and he's going to have to do some classes, community service, stuff like that. So he had a hundred and fifty dollar fine. <laughs> Got a nine figure net worth, maybe maybe ten figure net worth. Um, I guess we'll enter our woke update here. Texas school district had banned critical race theory. Will not perf- promote preferred pronouns. We're seeing the blowback coming, and um, this makes perfect sense. It, it just is not going to last. This preferred pronoun thing is not going to last. You can't keep doing this. Um. You can't keep doing this because it's too confusing. I, I mentioned this recently. I was listening to a horror movie podcast that I listened to because and I don't think there are any right of center ones. And there are a couple of lefties, but they, they know what they're talking about for the most part. And they kept referring to some of the pronouns as they and them. And it just confuses you because at a point you have to stop introducing it that they use the pronouns they and them. And you just have to start trying to use it casually and it just throws you off. Like to refer to a human being as plural was never going to work. It, it, this is an experiment that's happening in woke cities, and it will not last forever. If, if you even picking a unique pronoun makes more sense to me than calling people plural. They and them is a plural. It is not that there is the English language is a very complex language. It's not easy to learn all that stuff, but. You can't just have plural pronouns and expect that to take forever. It's obviously a a fad and a trend. Uh, The Independent Spirit Awards will no longer have Best Actor or Best Actress or Best Supporting Actor or Best Supporting Actress. It's going to be gender neutral. The woke Gestapo, as John Nolte puts it for us at Brightport News, is uh, limiting it to only two actor categories. So, of course, this punishes, I think, everyone, but uh, I think women in particular. And then now it's going to be if women are winning more often than men or men are winning more often than women. But who's to say what's a man and a woman? You know, what is a woman? No one knows. Then it's going to get that will get tracked and this will backfire, of course. And of course, it's anti-science from all the people who told us to trust the science for so long. And other festivals are doing the same thing too, but it is uh, just going to live at awards. There are no more when the, there are no more men and there are no more women in this country, which in a societal level is quite disturbing. Um, I do think, especially now as a parent with lots of children and children are unaware of that this woke stuff is going on and knowing what I offer my children versus what my wife offers my children, it's very clear biologically that there are crucial differences. 
and those should be welcomed. Those should be celebrated. And they were celebrated in this country for a long time. And now acting like there's no difference is, of course, anti-science, but it is, uh, it is going to hurt people if we continue to do this. Um, and there will be a blowback in normal parts of America, but places like Hollywood, like where they make independent movies. In the independent movie world, I don't know. The blowback might be, it might take more, a longer time. There's going to be a lot of unhappy people over this. And are they even going to be able to complain about it? Because again, then they're going to be going up against the woke mob. So I can't wait to see it. This is, I, I got to admit, I love this. I love this stuff. I'm not heavily invested in who wins the Independent Spirit Awards. And it does ruin things for some people. I know um, my mom watched them every year. Formerly worked in Hollywood, was in casting, stuff like that. But it's... Um, I, I would love to see how they're going to adjust to this, if they're going to be very happy with this decision. I think the small amount of woke points they're going to gather from this are going to not uh, add up to high, how highly irritating uh, shifting fundamentals of society will be to normal people who are just not into every second of your life being dedicated to wokeness. Uh, speaking of spending his life dedicated to wokeness, CNN's Brian Stelter's ratings are in for his final show, and they're actually lower than his show was two weeks prior. It, it was a slight uptick from um, the previous week, but lower than two weeks ago. So, and it was about where his average was, has been for the past few months, and it's certainly not the highest. And you know, he had higher rated shows earlier in the year. So people did not care that much that Brian Stelter was going off the air. This is a point I was making to someone else in another context. And I think I was talking about how in Breaking the News, my, my book, bestseller, all of you should pick it up, uh, why I did a deep investigation into MSNBC, but not CNN. And I just do feel like Democrats, MSNBC is much more of their id, is much more of the inner monologue of your average, really highly activated political Democrat. It's really not CNN. CNN is just a weak MSNBC now. It used to be Fox was the conservative network. MSNBC was left wing network. And CNN was the network that at least tried to give you the news first. And then that changed under Jeff Zucker, where CNN became MSNBC, but stupider and with worse looking people. And that is, uh, I think, how the public ended up uh, sort of agreeing with me. Continuing with uh, another with more woke stuff, Yale Pediatric Gender Clinic is, is accepting patients as young as three years old. Now, what would a gender clinic entail? Uh, it's going to entail uh, a putting people on a road towards chemical castration in towards general mutilation, correct? I mean, isn't this the road we're putting people on? Doing anything to a three-year-old other than, than uh, giving them a lot of love and reassuring them they're in a phase and this is no big deal and they can uh, j just live their life. And when they become adults, if they're still feeling what they're feeling at three, at three, which virtually none of you can remember when you were three, um, then, then, then you can talk to whatever gender clinician you want to. And even then you probably shouldn't, but to push children at three years old on a path that will lead to chemical castration and genital mutilation is one of the most horrifying and barbaric things that we've ever seen in America, period. And a Yale pediatric gender clinic is now doing this. Okay. Left-wing salon is panicked because LGBTQs are turning to the far right. And of course, far right means uh, anyone who likes Trump. That's the definition of that. 
Yeah, because most people in the LGBTQ community were, a lot of them did not get into it because they were supposed to have some sort of orthodox viewpoint where they were told that you cannot be an individual. You cannot be free. You have to listen to this mob. And that uh, people who want to gender transition three-year-olds are the same as normal people who just actually happen to be attracted to people of the same sex. This is something that's constantly said to me behind the scenes and occasionally on the show from gay adults that why are you lumping me in with the people who are trying to transition children? I have nothing to do with those monsters. And yet that is how they're branded by our media. I will mention quickly that the big story in left-wing media broken by the Washington Post is FBI's Mar-a-Lago search followed months of resistance and delay by Trump. Uh, this is all this innuendo that Trump delayed having his you know, home raided and uh, giving up whatever is in these documents, which we have no idea what's in the documents. We have no idea what's in them. And we're increasingly convinced that if it was something really bad, we, we would have heard about it by now. Um, and of course, MSNBC was in an outrage. Frank Figliuzzi, formerly of the FBI, saying that the FBI was too darn slow. He should have raided Trump a long time ago. They shouldn't have waited. But what did Trump do during those months? Is there any evidence that he was, you know, taking pictures of stuff and sending him to Kim Jong-un? Of course not. There's no evidence of that. It's all innuendo. All of this is designed for you to think, oh, now the bad orange man is even worse and badder and more orange than we thought. But they won't tell us what he did. They won't tell us what's in the documents and they won't tell us uh, whether or not he was uh, not actually in his right to have them. But that's all they do is what our uh, DOJ and FBI do is they leak to the Washington Post and they leak to the New York Times just a little bit, just a little bit to keep the story going. And so many people, half the country in terms of news consumers, just go, oh, here's my little kernel and we can move the goalposts. Um, I'm sorry, move, it's not moving the goalposts, it's moving the whatever the, move the chains. There you go, football expression. Move the chains. Now they're first down. Now we can talk a little bit more about Trump evading whatever it is, whatever harassment he was supposed to endure from the government yet again. expressed a week or two ago on the show that I was pretty excited about the Jennifer Ruth Green candidacy and she's done a pretty interesting job in terms of pulling in endorsements from pretty much every corner of the Republican Party and she is on the verge of turning a blue district red in Indiana which is again could be a bellwether if there's going to be a red wave maybe this is one of the races that the Republicans are, are able to eke out let's get to know her and what she's all about right now Jennifer Ruth, it's great to have you on the broadcast. Uh, I can't wait to get to meet you. Uh, we've had some coverage of you, Breitbart, and uh, it's all been positive, of course. And I, I want to hear about your story, and I want to hear about your your district and why you think your message is resonating. But uh, introduce yourself to the audience, if you wouldn't mind. Alex, thanks so much for having me this morning. I really appreciate it. Uh, yes, Jennifer Ruth Green out here in northwest Indiana. Really excited to serve the people here. Great people. We are starting a grassroots effort here and uh, people, you know, just a populist movement. People are ready for something different. People are ready to not be marginalized. And, um, you know, as we see our politics in the region continue to focus on the rich and the elite, 
um, Republicans and Democrats alike say, hey, how can we get a focus on us? And so that's what we're striving to do, striving to bring common sense solutions to everyday problems, because Hoosiers deserve better. Uh, my name is Jennifer Ruth Green, like I said, and I'm a third generation combat veteran. Both of my grandfathers served in World War II. My wow. father served in Vietnam. I was a combat mission commander uh, as a counterintelligence agent in Baghdad. And currently I serve as a lieutenant colonel in the Indiana Air National Guard. I uh, graduated from the United States Air Force Academy with a degree focusing on Asia. So got the chance to learn about China, Japan, the Korean Peninsula, India, minored in Japanese and uh, international relations and defense, national security. Those are my strengths. Uh, but I really believe that strong families and strong American economy are the two things that need to be highlighted uh, over the next several years to continue to get back on track. And so overall, um, my, ho- my hobbies are traveling, uh, and I love eating tacos. But <laughs> that's the, the quick and dirty. It's a, it's, a, it's a big taco contingency in the audience. I'll tell you that, Jennifer Ruth. That's that Excellent. is a, 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 Excellent. E, 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 easy way, easy way to get some votes here in uh, <laughs> Breitbart News Daily. Uh, I want to talk about before we get into your decision to run for office to go to the Congress. Uh, I I have to. We got to expand a little bit more. Third generation combat veteran and yeah. U.S. Air Force. Um, academy graduate uh, what when did you know you wanted to do this and tell me about uh, some of the places you were deployed and what you saw sure so yes my 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 grandparents and, and parents set a strong uh, just a strong example I really loved the military uh, from time as a young child I remember you know trying to help my dad shine his shoes or preparing his shoes and helping get his uniform ready. And I was probably more of a nuisance than a help, you know, like putting his shoes by the door when he really wanted them by the bed or whatever it was. I just wanted to be a help and touch things. And so I just remember having a fascination and just respecting, you know, watching him walk out the door in the uniform. And uh, my mom, you know, as a military wife, but professional in her own right, just just seeing the opportunities they had. But I was the baby of six, or I am the baby of six. And so we didn't really get to move around a lot. I was born in Long Beach and then grew up in California. Um, But as soon as I left active duty, chose to make Indiana my home. So I appreciate that as an adult, after the Air Force moved me around, I got to live here. but I, so hold I, on. So so this is big because I'm from uh, Southern California and I've spent a fair okay. bit of time in Indiana because for whatever reason, um, there seems to have been a somewhat of a, a of a just a, a crop of people I've worked with over the years uh, who have been in, in Indiana and people always seem very happy there. It seems like a, a pretty terrific way of life. Great cost of living, but uh, mm-hmm. pretty cold. And you're definitely dealing with some weather you're not dealing with in Long Beach. So tell me when yes. you thought that of all the places, this is where you're going to settle settle in. Sure. So I left active duty uh, after combat and uh, had a nuclear assignment there in California. And then I went to grad school and joined the Guard. And so I was in the California Air National Guard. And after grad school, I got asked to teach at a college here in Northwest Indiana. And um, it was an easy yes. And so came out here in 2013 and haven't looked back since. But I really, truly love, as a Republican, having my vote get counted. So it's great to be in Indiana. Yeah, that is uh, that, that that is a sweet thing when you come from where I came from in, in Los Angeles, where it was just t- totally pointless 
to I, I remember uh, one time I had an uh, an aunt who was saying that I should run against uh, figure out a way to run against uh, Henry Waxman, who is a Democrat, mm. a, a longtime congressman who was one of the worst people mm-hmm. in Congress. And uh, the, the, and I was thinking so I could have the privilege to lose by fifty points and just get insulted. Like that sounds so horrible. <laughs> and so it's like such a horrible use of time. Um, so it says on your website that your nickname is Romper. Is that true? And if so, how did you get that nickname? It is. It is. So you get a call sign if you do something dumb, different, or dangerous. Uh, and uh-huh. mine was focused on dumb. Uh, <laughs> so I was, uh, I was at an event, and it was an event where they wanted to discuss um, pay disparities between men and women. And so they also wanted to talk about being a woman working in a men's world. And so um, being in the military, they said, hey, we'd love to invite you to talk about it. And, you know, my answers were kind of simple. Our pay is based on rank and that kind of thing. So it's, it's pretty simplified as far as our pay scale. But in order to illustrate the fact that, you know, I was there, they asked if I would, you know, come in my flight suit. So came in a civilian configuration with my flight suit. And all night long, um, it was an all-women's event. They just said, I love your romper. I love how you paired it with those black boots. I love your patches. They look so authentic. And so they just fawned over it the whole evening. And so when I got back the next day, they were like, why would you do something so dumb? You know, first of all, why are you wearing a romper? Why are you wearing a flight suit? You know, it looks like a romper. And then, so anyway, that was just the story in and of itself. The flight suit looks like a romper, and I was dumb to wear it out in a civilian crowd. And then to get fawned over, it just it's just a thing. So... So Indiana is one of the deepest red states in the union, but your district, if I'm not mistaken, pretty much is part of the greater Chicago metropolitan area. And thus, it has sort of been a Democrat stronghold. Uh, but your race, most of the prognosticators have it in the to- in the toss up category, which is a pretty excellent position to be in so far because people are just getting to know you. And that's a, you know, it's traditionally a blue area and already be in that territory is I think a good sign, but to tell me the plan and tell me about your district in particular, which I think is the first district in Indiana uh, and why you think that you would be a, a more suitable congressman for the area than the Democrat. No, you're absolutely right. in all your stats, um, we are a blue-collar district. Uh, 25% of the steel in the country comes from here, and we are just good, hardworking people um, who just want to get up every day, take care of their family, serve their neighbors, go to church. That's what our district wants to do. So we're we are not a blue district. I tell people we're a purple district with a voter turnout problem, and so we <laughs> can just continue to, to forge ahead and do good things. Yes. Um, we're going to do all right. And, and I really believe that when the district, um, you know, so when you talk about the race being a toss-up, it is a function of a team effort. Um, when we started this race, it was rated likely Dem, then it moved to lean Dem, and now it's a toss-up. And I think that's a function of uh, largely fundraising. You know, we, again, have a grassroots effort, and our average donation size in the second quarter was $78. Uh, and that speaks volumes. You know, we're in the middle of a recession and here we are having people who are willing to give over and above, knowing that expenses are tight right now, simply for the sake of helping this campaign move forward. And so Hoosiers deserve better. They believe they deserve better. And they believe that I'm going to be able to give that to them. And so when we look at our current congressman, he is a good man. And I will always speak very highly of him to put his name in the hat. And I respect that. Um, but I think everyday Democrats, 
everyday Republicans, we are not falling into the far, far extremes of either party who have the microphone right now. And so my opponent, Congressman Mervan, he has just taken to these socialist ideals and really embraced them. And that's yeah. the struggle. He has these extreme views on the economy in the middle of, of a recession. He wants to you know, pass the Inflation Expansion Act, and he's going to have these 87,000 IRS agents that are going to be responsible for paying the, the billions of dollars that are going to, going to be necessary to sustain this bill. You know, I'd rather have 87,000 more Border Patrol agents. And I just think Amen. that that people here thought they could get away with the agenda they wanted, and it is hurting American families. And so really, my goal is to just share the realities of these decisions, that we are raising taxes on the middle class, we're increasing our energy costs, when energy was the root of the problem to begin with, we're weaponizing the IRS, we're making people's lives harder, and ultimately, at the end of the day, we were better off yesterday than we were today and we cannot afford to reelect congressman mervan and so nice guy we just can't afford to reelect him that's the simple message and as i desire to move forward you know one of the things that being in the military has taught me is that we like good ideas and we don't care where they come from we don't care if you're a republican we don't care if you're a democrat we don't care if you're black we don't care if you're white we don't care if you're brown we don't care what language you started speaking at the beginning of your life we just care that we're on mission and so our mission is to help America get back on track. And Republicans are not the, you know, they don't have a monopoly on good ideas. And I look forward to collaborating. And I don't, I don't mean compromising in my beliefs and my values, but collaborating to bring good ideas to the table is exactly where I want to be to be able to serve Hoosiers. And I just believe that us being in this toss-up right now, as you know, as far as the race itself goes, is a reflection of people saying, you know what, I want good ideas and I want someone who's going to listen to me. And I don't want to have and experience the extreme agenda that Congressman Mervan continues to bring to the region. Yeah, and you make a pretty interesting point, but ultimately when you're going to Congress, you're going to vote and you're going to vote for things. And when you keep, when people vote for things like, I don't know, the Inflation Reduction Act that doesn't reduce inflation, you're insulting the intelligence of the public. If you're someone who is voting party line with what the Democrats are standing for right now, then you're voting for socialist policies. It, it just is, it's bottom line. I, I don't say it as a pejorative. I say it as just a fact that we're running the country as if we're a socialist country right now. And it, it is, you might be a good person, you might be a moderate person in your personal life. But if you keep uh, pulling that lever for uh, Joe Biden's agenda right now, then you're, you're you're part of the problem is good, good person or not. And this is a, a major reality for a lot of people right now. Uh, Jennifer Ruth Green, though, is my guest and she's candidate Republican nominee in the first district of Indiana, which is a, a race that is t typically a Democrat stronghold. And it is right now pretty much a coin toss. And uh, I think this is definitely a candidate to uh, support Jennifer Ruth Green. Uh, Jennifer Ruth, would you mind throwing out that uh, uh, your website if people want to support you and check out more of what you're about? Yes, Jennifer-RuthGreen.com. Okay, e easy enough. And uh, one thing that uh, is noteworthy is uh, you racked up a ton of endorsements in pretty much every corner of the Republican Party, the anti-establishment, the establishment, the neoconservatives. The, it seems like uh, you've been able to get everyone behind you, uh, which is a, a good thing. 
And uh, it feels like this. There's a lot of momentum um, behind your your candidacy. But I want to ask you about your the issues. What are the most important things for you if you go to the Congress? What's front and center in your eyes? Yeah, I appreciate that. I think it's a, a, a team sport here, and I think Republicans are recognizing that we all have to work together in order to be effective. And uh, so the endorsements are exciting and encouraging. But thank you. And when I look at this the state of our nation right now. The economy is the biggest. If we do not get reckless spending under control, if we do not unleash American energy, it's just a very difficult situation for us. It's just untenable. And so that's what I continue to hear on the ground. You know, I've, I've had the, the, the privilege to connect with so many voters and in connecting with them, that's the biggest thing. I talked to a lady the other day, a young woman who, um, you know, she's out pumping gas. And as we connected, she talked to me about the reality of her situation where she has to, you know, obviously be wiser about her choices and when she goes out and where she goes and where she shops and how often she shops and that kind of thing. But she also said she makes $300 more than what it takes to be on welfare. And resultantly, she and her husband and her small child now have to go to food pantries just to be able to, to stay above board and be able to eat. And so I'm glad for social programs. I'm grateful for those things. But we are forcing people to be on those, you know, to be in that situation. And we're making conscious choices to continue to constrict our economy and hurt our people. And we just have to take better care of our people. And so the lack of representation and the continued attack on people who are hurting the most uh, from these policy decisions regarding economics, that's what we have to fix. So those are the that's the biggest element that I've seen because it's hurting everybody, not just your ideological, sociological, you know, inputs. It is it is hurting every piece of every American's pocketbook and it's hurting us in the first district the most because we're just regular working class people. So t- tell me, uh, because you've got experience in uh, this realm, uh, evaluate Joe Biden's foreign policy right now. What are particular highlights and lowlights? What do you think is the biggest geopolitical threat to the country right now? The biggest geopolitical threat to the United States is China, with great clarity. And the previous administration, President Trump, listed in the national security strategy as the commander-in-chief that China was our greatest threat. And as you know, the national security downflows to the national defense strategy, which downflows to combatant commanders, which essentially tells military members where we're going to focus our efforts. And President Biden's national security strategy listed our number one enemy as domestic terrorism. And so we have posse comitatus, which, as you know, doesn't allow the military to enforce civilian law. And I mean, that's what we escaped from, from Britain. And I think about that, and it puzzles me as a military member, you know, what am I supposed to do? What are our forces supposed to do with that designation? And China has given us a very clear directive, noting that they are going to be the world leader in economics, in arms, in military strength, and they have a timeline. And China, you know, focuses, they measure time on a, in, in decades, and we measure time on a stopwatch. And that's a very different dynamic. We make our decisions minute by minute, and we'll make a move to the left, a jig to the right. We'll do things like that. But China just sits and waits patiently and executes their long-term strategy. And so 
When I think about China's commitment, they are serious. They are very serious. And so I think the perceived weakness on a national stage, which started multiple years ago, um, continues to drive international politics. It drove Russia's Ukraine uh, invasion of Ukraine. And I believe that China just continues to sit back, watch, and allow us to show weaknesses so that they can continue to figure out how and when to attack. And so China is our biggest threat, and I worry greatly about what they're going to do. Yeah, I think you're correct on this. And I think that another thing that I'm heartened by, it seems like the Republicans are coming to a consensus that that's the case. And I think you would have gotten a lot of different mm. answers uh, five or 10 years ago, unfortunately. And I think now mm. everyone everyone sort of gets it. Um, uh, let me ask you about a domestic policy. Uh, what do you feel like is, uh, what do you feel like should be the priority? Let's say that you've got a, uh, let, let's do a couple hypotheticals. A Republican Congress, and a uh, Democrat-controlled Senate. Uh, Republicans control both chambers. Um, I guess those are the only two scenarios for, the first, for, the, for, for your first term if you go to Washington. Uh, what do you see as the agenda in both those scenarios? Sure. So getting our economy back on track, I think we have too many regulations that restrict job growth. Um, you know, President Biden has put in place more than 100 new regulations for appliances alone, and costs have skyrocketed. And I just I, I believe that we need to focus on the governmental roles that that help federalism. States have responsibilities. The federal mm. government has responsibilities. And the Tenth Amendment must be reviewed because the federal government has such great overreach. And I believe that if we allow the federal government to do its role, which essentially is anything not given to the state, protecting the country at large, national defense, national security, those kinds of things, if we get our focus back, that in and of itself will help us fundamentally to, to provide legislation to be effective. So if we want to talk about one-offs, couple of issues, two, three things like that, I think, I think um, you know, we have to focus on securing our border because, you know, regretfully, we had a team member who's who had a direct family member just this past month, you know, lose their life due to an opioid overdose, fentanyl specifically, brought in from the southern border. And so, you know, when I think about the reality of that, it's tragic. And it's not just happening to our team, our campaign team. It's happening to so many people across the country. And so there are so many impacts to government regulations, to not the government over-exercising its authority in areas where it is not, you know, it shouldn't be focusing. And then we think about the freedom from the southern border, uh, the freedom for drugs to come in, the freedom for sex trafficking to come in. And those are just some major issues that we have to figure out as a country. And I hope that when we have the opportunity to take back the House, um, we'll focus on those things and get our focus right for our country, because it has to be laser-focused in order to be effective. Uh, do you have any thoughts so far on the ongoing saga uh, regarding the Mar-a-Lago raid of former President Trump? It feels like we're not getting a lot of answers, and uh, but we're getting a lot of innuendo from the establishment of media. Uh, what's your take on all this? I really struggle with a perceived you know, politicization of the DOJ because that hurts everybody. They're hardworking federal agents striving to do their job. But if people perceive that it's politicized, that's going to be difficult. And if people perceive that, you know, the government is going to come after them, 
the real issue is that, you know, President Trump has lawyers that he can pay uh, to to sort through all of the pieces of legislation um, that he's he may have to face. But everyday people like me, like you, we're not going to have the opportunity to to fight the government on a large scale. And so when we talk about how we doubled the IRS budget and we added those 87,000 IRS agents, those are people that are coming to look after or look into everyday people. And we don't have the option to focus on fixing and solving problems that way. And so that's the biggest struggle for me. Everyday people aren't going to have the opportunity to defend themselves from these everyday, uh, you know, intrusions and overreach that the government will provide, you know, as a result of latest government action. And so those are the biggest struggles that I have. Yeah, and a reasonable ones indeed. Jennifer Ruth Green, I really appreciate you coming on, spending so much time with me, and I'd love to have you back. So I don't want to take any more of your time for now. Uh, but let's have you come back, and we'll talk more about uh, some things on your mind and what you believe. But Jennifer-Ruth-Green is her website if you want to support her. And this is a big race. If there's going to be a red wave, this feels like a seat that would be a really good, a good one to pick up for Republicans. I really appreciate this. Thank you very much. Have a great day. That's today's broadcast. Thanks so much to producer Zach and Greg Eben, as well as Robert Marlowe, who helps me pick topics. And for all of you who've gone to mysonhunter.com and pre-ordered the film, helps us out a lot, and it'll be coming out in just a few weeks. And we can't thank you enough for your support. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.